So why believe Jesus about what he says about himself? Because God raised him from the dead. Because he's alive. Because he's alive today, both certifying that he is both God and Lord. Hi, my name is Michael Tuck, and I'm the associate pastor here at Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. We are a local church in Surrey, Virginia, dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the weekly podcast that we put out for our local church family and the church as a whole. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Mark chapter 16, a man and his wife and his cranky mother-in-law were over in the Holy Land and his mother-in-law died. You've probably heard this before. But the undertaker told them they could ship her home for $15,000 so they could bury her there for 150. The man thought about it for less than a minute and said, we're shipping her home. And the undertaker said, what? $15,000? She can have a great burial right here. And the man, the man said, yeah. He said, but a man died here 2,000 years ago and they buried him and three days later, he came back. I can't take that chance. <laughs> The resurrection of Jesus changes everything, and that's what we're going to talk about this morning, and not just where you bury your mother-in-law, all right? So uh, Mark chapter 16, last week we saw the murder of the Lord Jesus by the Jewish leadership being facilitated by the Roman government. The story ended with Joseph and Nicodemus bearing Jesus at a great cost to themselves. You know, I've thought about that a lot this week. I don't know why it stuck with me, but Nicodemus and uh, Joseph went, they were part of the Sanhedrin. They went from being secret disciples to now being outed, being all out, choosing Jesus. They sided with Jesus over the Sanhedrin. Not only were they unclean for the seven days following and missing all that kind of stuff, but there was no doubt whose side they were on. And they decided that it was better to come down on Jesus. Not that they, I don't think they understood anything. I don't think they understood, I might be wrong, but I don't think they understood that Jesus was dying for them or the resurrection. I don't think they understood any of that. But they thought it's better for us to come down on the side of Jesus than it is to come down uh, on the side of the Sanhedrin. So, you know, they, at great cost to themselves, buried Jesus. Like last week, we're going we're gonna to walk our way through the text. And then at the end, I'm going to make some observations for us. So let's sort of just begin our story. I'm going to hopefully, my goal this morning is to do three things. One is I want to encourage you. Two, I want to teach you. And three, I want to call you. All right, so those are my three, those are my three objectives this morning. So let's walk through the text. Mark chapter 16, verse 1. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, Salome, bought spices so they could go and anoint him. Very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, they went to the tomb at sunrise, and they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone from the entrance of the tomb for us? And looking up, they noticed that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. It's Sunday morning, it's daybreak, the Sabbath has ended, and so these ladies, these three ladies, have gone out there to anoint the body of Jesus. They, if you remember, they had watched where Jesus had been buried, but evidently they'd not seen the fact that Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea had already anointed the body of Jesus, and so they are going out there on this day to do that. 
They had seen the stone rolled in front of the gravesite, and so they were talking amongst themselves, maybe even discussing how are we going to move that stone that they rolled in front of the grave. They didn't know that the religious leadership had gone to Pilate and said, we need somebody to guard the tomb. They didn't know that at the resurrection of Jesus, the guard had all fled. They did not know that God himself had rolled the stone out of the way because, well, Mark didn't record any of that, but other biographers did, right? But they didn't know any of this. So when they get there, they see it. No one is there and the stone is not in front of the grave. Verse five, when they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he told them. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen. He's not here. See the place where they put him, but go tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you to Galilee and you will see him there just as he told you. So these ladies are the first witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. When they get to the tomb, they go inside the tomb and they see what appears to them to be a young man sitting there in a white robe. And I'm guessing they're startled to find a living being in in that tomb. It seems obvious uh, and corroborated by the other accounts that the person they encounter is an angel. And his first words are reassuring. He says, don't be afraid. Don't be alarmed. I guess he realizes, boy, this would be kind of scary walking into a dark tomb and, and there's somebody sitting in there. He says, I know you're looking for Jesus the Nazarene. He's not here. He's risen. Man, the first words uh, that Mark records, he's risen, he's resurrected, he's not here, he's alive. And then he says to them, look for yourselves, look for yourselves, he's not here, the tomb is empty. And following that, he says, go tell your disciples and Peter that he's alive and he'll see them in Galilee, as he said. Now, don't you love what the angel said to them? He said, go tell Peter. (laughs) I love that. Go tell Peter because... I imagine that of all the disciples, Peter needs to meet with Jesus, maybe more than the other ones. Verse 8, they went out and ran from the tomb because trembling and astonishment overwhelmed them. And they said nothing to anyone since they were afraid. The three ladies were so overwhelmed, they're trembling. I mean, they're shaking. They're shaking with I guess fear, shaking with excitement, I'm not sure. But it says they said nothing to anyone since they were afraid. Now, we know from the other accounts that that doesn't mean that they didn't, they went and hid it all to themselves, they didn't tell anybody. Other biographies of Jesus say that they did exactly what this angel told them to do. They, they left and went and told the other disciples. And so when Mark says they didn't tell anyone, obviously Mark means something along the lines, as they're going to tell the disciples, they're not talking to anyone, right? Because they're so afraid. So they're just on their way to tell the disciples. Now, let's, uh, let's talk a little textual criticism for a few moments. Don't tune me out. I think this is important for you to understand. But this is where I'm going to teach some things that maybe you know, maybe you don't know. But we, we didn't get our Bible, and I can't hold my iPad up, but we didn't get the Bible as a book as you have it in your hands in, in front of you. In fact, the church wrestled for a, quite a few years as to which Letters, which books, which narratives, which biographies, which authors had been inspired by God and should be included in Scripture. So that, that took a while. But there's another issue as well. And this other issue has to do that having decided what books should be in the Bible, we did not get the Bible 
delivered to us like you have it in your hands there. We didn't get the original letters, the original biographies, the original narratives. We, we didn't get them preserved for us from the very beginning. What we've gotten is this, lots of fragments, lots and lots of fragments of the New Testament books. And eventually we got uh, full copies of the books. There was no Xerox machine. There was no copy machines back then. And so they didn't take their letters and put it on a machine and copy it and send it on. So whatever they wrote was exactly what they wrote. But people hand copied these, these letters. And because they hand copied these letters, uh, they all vary just a bit. They all don't exactly say the same thing. Now, lots of the discrepancies, lots of the differences are minor. The oldest fragment of Mark has been dated to 150 to 250 AD, right? But for matters of our discussion this morning, the two oldest full versions of Mark's biography of Jesus, uh, they they were found later. I think they're around 350 AD. But those full versions of Mark's biography of Jesus, they end at verse 8. There is nothing more in those oldest full versions of Mark after after verse 8. Now the preponderance, if you're following me, the preponderance of textual evidence, meaning that the majority of manuscripts that have survived from later dates, say like 400s or the 500s, meaning they're younger, they're younger editions of, of Mark, Well, they have these last verses of Mark 9 through 20 in them. If you look at your Bible, most likely your Bible will have verses 9 through verse 20 bracketed. It may even said, I was reading the ESV this morning in our prayer time, and I think even before you get into verse 9, it says, this doesn't appear in some of the oldest versions. Well, actually, the truth is it doesn't appear in the oldest full versions of, uh, of the gospel of Mark that we have. Uh, in fact, verses 9 through 12, 20 are not the only ending that manuscripts ha- that have survived have. There are a variety of different endings after verse 8, right? Here's one example. One manuscript has this. After verse 8, it, it, Mark ends like this. But they reported briefly to Peter and those with him all that they had been told. And after these things, Jesus himself sent out through them from east to west the sacred and perishable proclamation of eternal salvation. That's the ending of Mark in one manuscript that has survived. One of the principles of textual study, and textual study is this, if we have all these fragments and we have all these versions and they don't exactly agree, for instance, on the ending of Mark, what was the ending of Mark? So, So textual criticism is the study of trying to figure out what is the most accurate version of the books of the Bible that we have. Now, again, before, before I cause you to stumble, I mean, a lot of these differences are, are very, very minor. They're very, very minor. But this one, this one is somewhat bigger in that the, the ending isn't there. The problem with ending Mark at, at verse 8, you all know what the problem with why people have struggled with the, the ending of verse uh, at 8? It's because it just seems like such an abrupt conclusion to this biography. Mark has no one seeing Jesus. The other three biographies do. In fact, according to Mark, the future sightings of Jesus will be in the north, in Galilee, not in Jerusalem. Though I was reading this morning also in our 
in our prayer time, I noticed that it's either Matthew, it's either Matthew or Luke, one of them, say the very same thing that Mark says, that Jesus said, hey, I'll meet you in Galilee. But the, the biography of John has them meeting Jesus, not in Galilee, but that same first night meeting them in in Jerusalem. So in spite these seemingly unsatisfactory endings, um, this unsatisfactory ending, most Bible scholars, conservative and liberal, listen to me, believe that the last verses of Mark 9 through 20 were added by some well-intentioned scribe who wanted to make a better ending for the gospel of Mark a more compelling ending. A textual commentary on the Greek uh, New Testament by Bruce Metzger, who was a leading, a leading scholar in this, conservative scholar. He wrote, Clement of Alexandria and Origen, early 3rd century, that would have meant early 200s, show no knowledge of the existence of these verses. Furthermore, Eusebius and Jerome attest, they would have been in the 300s, that the passage was absent from almost all Greek copies of Mark known to them. Furthermore, when you look at the Greek of verses 9 through 20, you'll notice that the Greek, they say that, and again, this is beyond me, but people who understand Greek say that the, uh, the Greek style of those last verses is different from the earlier verses. So it seems pretty clear to almost everyone that whoever wrote this last part of Mark took endings from Matthew, Luke, and John and created a proper ending for Mark. Mark is reported to be the oldest biography, written possibly, they suggest, between 60 and 70 A.D. And the textual evidence suggests that people were fine with Mark's ending at that point, ending at verse 8 the way that it was. Remember this, Mark's work is skinnier than all the others. That's my term, right? And by skinnier, I mean this, just that he doesn't go into so much detail that a lot of the other biographers do, right? Um, In Mark, on the last night of Jesus' life, he told his disciples, and this was in Matthew too, because it was in our Sunday school class as well. In Mark, on the last night of Jesus' life, he told his disciples following the meal, after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee, right? So that's in Mark, and that's in Matthew. And Mark is simply pointing his readers to what Jesus said earlier. So what do we do with the ending? What do we do with the ending of 9 through 20? So here, here, here are my three suggestions, and, and you're more than welcome to disagree with me, but these are my three suggestions on the ending of Mark, what we should do with it. Number one, recognize that most likely Mark didn't write it, that it was added to Mark's gospel. Number two, realize that it is pretty much a retelling of the other biographies that was added to Mark. And we're going to look at it in just a minute. We're going to actually study it, okay? But it's, it's pretty much a, a, a retelling of of parts of the other biographies. And number three, see it as potentially valuable to us, the early church and and the church as it went along saw value in keeping it, but be careful not to build any new or major teachings off of it. And I believe there's only one possibility for that. And I'll share with you what I think it is. So let's dive into nine through 20. Early the first day of the week after he had risen, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had driven seven demons. She went and reported to those who had been with him as they were mourning and weeping. Yet when they heard that he was alive and that he had been seen by her, they did not believe it. 
Now, the other biographies of Jesus all talk about Mary Magdalene personally going to the tomb and being at the tomb. Maybe she didn't leave with the other ladies. Maybe she came back to the tomb after the other ladies had had left. But you remember the story, Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene personally. She goes back eventually and tells the other disciples that she's seen Jesus. Not just that she's seen an angel, she's seen Jesus, but they don't really believe her. Maybe they want to, but they just can't bring themselves to do that. Some folks have pointed out the veracity of the resurrection stories that noticing that it's Jesus appears to a woman first, all right? Who in that culture, a woman's testimony didn't count, right? If they were making up the story of the resurrection, they would not have made up a story where Jesus first appears to women. John tells us that he and Peter ran onto the tomb. Remember this? They ran onto the tomb. I think John was a quicker runner than Peter. I've always had the impression that Peter was overweight like me, Uh, but I might be wrong. But John runs to the tomb and he gets there, he stops, and Peter just dashes right on in. But you know what John says when he looks into the tomb? He says, he believed. So up until this point, they don't really believe, but when he looks into the tomb, John believes Jesus is alive. Verse 12, after this, he appeared in a different form to two of them walking on their way into the country. And they went and reported it to the rest who did not believe them either. And this is the story recorded for us only in Luke, uh, in his biography, the story of the two men on their way to the to Emmaus. Remember Jesus meets alongside him, walks with them. That's what, that's what this is about, right? Uh, and he tells them how the Old Testament predicted what they have uh, experienced and that um, Jesus kept his identity from them till the very end. When they return back, Mark tells us that the other guys are still incredulous. They don't believe. Verse 14. Later, he appeared to the 11 themselves as they were reclining at the table. He rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart because they did not believe those who saw him after he had risen. Now, I looked at all the other uh, biographies and he doesn't really, you don't really see a rebuke of all of them. But Mark says that when Jesus showed up, I read you just a moment ago from John, right? There doesn't seem to be a rebuke there, but but Mark tells us there was, or this writer tells us, excuse me, this writer tells us that there was a rebuke of them for their unbelief. This part refers to Jesus appearing to the main disciples. Okay, and you'll remember Thomas, of course, was really obstinate in his unbelief. Verse 15, then he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Next, we have the commissioning of the disciples. It sounds somewhat like Matthew 28, does it not? Therefore, go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And he and, and sounds somewhat like John when Mark says, or this author says, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. That sounds a little bit like what John says in chapter 3. When he comments on Jesus' words, he says, and whoever believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe in him is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. The ending continues, verse 17. And these signs will accompany those who believe. And in my name, they will drive out demons and they will speak in new tongues and they will pick up snakes and they, will, uh, and they should drink anything deadly. It will not harm them and they'll lay hands on the sick and they will get well. Now here's where it gets somewhat problematic because people have taken these verses and they have said, because it says these signs will accompany those who believe, 
they've said that means that these signs should accompany every believer all the time. And so this is where we get snake handling from. I mean, we've all heard about the snake handling churches, right? Well, here's where it comes from. Because people have said, hey, these are the signs that must accompany those who believe. And so people bring rattlesnakes into their church worship services because that's how you prove that you are you, you belong to him because, hey, these signs accompany those who follow the, the Lord. In 2014, about 10 years ago, the most famous snake handler in our country, Pastor Jamie Cooch, died of a snake bite. 2022, John Brock, no kin to our own John Brock, dies of a, of a snake bite while handling, handling a snake in service. Both men died, but listen to this, they died because they didn't take the antidote, because they said, God will save us because we belong to him. And you see, these are the signs that follow any man who follows Jesus. If he's bit by a snake, God's going to rescue him, so they wouldn't take the antidote. Now I'm speculating, but I imagine most of the things mentioned in 17 through 18 came about because these were the things that happened to the apostles. Now let's, let's walk back through them again. They spoke in unlearned languages, whether earthly or heavenly. They, uh, they were bit by snakes, and God saved them. Remember on the island of Malta when Paul gets bit by the... They, they, they almost worship him because he doesn't die of that. They laid hands on the sick and healed them. They cast out the demons. There is no biblical mention of people drinking poisoning and surviving, but, but maybe, that ha- I'm gonna spe- maybe that happened to the apostles too. Actually, I had this thought in the snake-handling churches. I wonder why they don't drink antifreeze <laughs> or have everybody chew... Uh, What's that, arsenic, you know, or, or one of those things? Why, why don't you chew those things, right, or do those things in your service? Why just the snake handling? The truth is God did all those things for his followers, right? But here's where I think the, the problem comes in. The problem comes in when we make those universal promises to every disciple all the time because I don't believe that's something God's ever promised all of us. Think think with me just for a minute. Jesus is taken up on the pinnacle of of the temple and Satan tells him, jump off and God's going to rescue you. Remember what Jesus says? He quotes him a verse too. Remember what Jesus says? He says, don't test the Lord your God. Don't test him. I I mean, uh, uh, handling snakes in your worship service and expecting God to rescue you is to test the Lord. I think, you know, uh, all of these things were true of God's disciples. I'm just not sure that we, sure we can universalize those verses and say that's what every believer has to happen to every believer all the time. Verse 19. So the Lord Jesus, after speaking to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the word by the accompanying signs. The last two verses are what we see in the book of Acts, the ascension of Jesus, found in Luke and in Acts. Um, Probably when it talks about seated at the right hand of God, could be what God said to Caiaphas. Remember what God said to Jesus said to Caiaphas, you'll see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of God. Daniel chapter 7, the Son of Man is going to come with the clouds, and he's going to step into into heaven, and he's going to sit before the Ancient of Days. Maybe it's that. Peter Peter quotes this in Acts chapter 2, that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. So this writer brings that into this ending. It ends with the disciples going out and preaching the good news, and God confirming it with miraculous signs, something that we see all throughout the book of Acts. So as you see... Even though Mark probably didn't write these verses, they don't contradict the other biographies, but most likely 
come from them. The only danger I see would be to take and make a universal principle that all these things have to be true of every believer at all times. I just don't think we can do that. Now, let me go on to the, hopefully be the really encouraging part to you. There is no more important event in history than the resurrection of Jesus. The truthfulness of the resurrection is the linchpin of our Christian faith. In other words, if Jesus is not risen, um, Christianity rises and falls on the veracity of the resurrection. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, what we proclaim this morning is pointless, and so is your faith. And by the way, those are not my words. Those were the words of the Apostle Paul to the church at Corinth. So today we've listened to Mark share this most likely Peter's story, or this eyewitness account of the resurrection of Jesus. You, you, you know, you and I know that Germany lost World War II, right? And we know it because of the eyewitness testimony that's none of us were there. We know it because of the eyewitness testimony of people, but we also know it because the world would be a very different place had Germany won, right? So today, I want to tell you, we know that Jesus rose from the dead because of the eyewitness accounts of people, but we also know that if he had not risen from the dead, the world would be a very different place than it is. Uh, Jesus rose from the dead. So as we conclude this talk this morning, I would, like to, I would like to share with you three accomplishments, three things the resurrection of Jesus brought about that affect us today, and hopefully you'll find great encouragement in these. Here's the first one. The resurrection of Jesus certified the claims of Jesus' identity. If there's anything that's true in the preaching of the early church, it was this. If Jesus is risen from the dead, his resurrection confirms the fact that he is both Lord and God. Listen to Peter, fellow Israelites, Acts chapter two, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him. As you yourselves know, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, i.e. Rome, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Now here it is. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the act agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. And then we drop to verse 33. Therefore, because Christ is risen from the dead, therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you see and hear. Verse 36, again, therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him, who? Jesus, both Lord and Messiah, this Jesus whom you've crucified. Paul said something similar in Acts 17. Therefore, having overlooked times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed. Listen, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. In the minds of the early believers, Jesus rising from the dead was sufficient proof to confirm the identity of Jesus. And what was the identity of Jesus? Who was he? Well, here's what the Bible says. He is God. As outlandish as that sounds, he is God. He's the creator, the one who's always existed, who became 
a person like us who took on our humanity in himself. Here's what his enemy said about him. You being a man, make yourself out to be God. His friends claimed it. Thomas, my, Thomas said, my Lord and my God. Jesus claimed it. When he and Philip are, are together, all the disciples are together, Philip says, show us God the Father. Here's what Jesus said. Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So why believe Jesus about what he says about himself? Because God raised him from the dead. Because he's alive. Because he's alive today, both certifying that he is both God and Lord. And in my own journey to faith, listen, this was, this was, this is how I came to faith. I started looking at the evidence for Jesus' resurrection. And when I saw that he claimed to be God and I ended up believing the resurrection, I said, well, then Jesus has to be God. So if you're still on a journey to faith, here's what I'd like to say to you. This should be something you should examine. Jesus claimed to be God, to become God, the second person of the Trinity became one with us and like us so that he could bear in himself our sin. You should look into the evidence for the resurrection because it proves his identity. Here's the second thing it does, or it did, excuse me. It validated the value of Jesus' commands. Jesus would say to his followers, if any man wishes to come after me, let him take up his cross, deny himself, and follow me. Jesus wasn't asking for fluff on our behalf. He's really asking for everything from us. To the rich, to the rich guy, he says, who said, what must I do to have eternal life? Jesus says, give everything away and come and follow me. Here's what Jesus calls us to do. He calls us to die to ourselves, to our lives, and to get, live, give our future life to him. Matthew 6, 19, do not store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be. Now listen to what I'm going to say. In the world in which we live, we have an idiom that says, a bird in hand is worth two in the bush. Remember that idiom? What does it mean? It means something that I already have is worth the potential of something, two of something that may be out there that I don't possess, right? Why should I live for someone who tells me to give up my life to follow him? Why should I not live for the pleasures of this world now? Because I have it. Why not live for it now, but rather instead surrender that for the promise of something better that I can't see, can't feel, can't know by my senses? Why should I do that? That's a good question, I think. I think that's, that's what a lot of atheists would ask us, right? The answer is because Jesus rose from the dead, because Jesus is alive. He's the only person who has died and now is alive forevermore. So listen, if you determine, if you believe that Jesus did not rise from the dead, why are you here wasting your time? Seriously, if you don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead, why would you waste your time here with us? In fact, do as you please, because in my opinion, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, you are no different than a worm. You're no different than a dog. You're no different than a great ape if Jesus isn't risen from the dead. When you die, you're dead and you'll never live again. If Jesus didn't live again, neither will you. And by the way, that's not Jimmy now, that's Paul saying that. 
If Jesus did not live again, neither will you. You have no reason to live your life by the directives that Jesus left us. But I'm absolutely convinced, as are hopefully all of you, that Jesus did rise from the dead. And it's his resurrection that gives us conviction to lay down our lives for him like he wants us to. His resurrection gives us assurance that you are not believing a lie, but you are believing the truth. His resurrection gives you reason to let go of the burdened hand and look to the two in the bush that you'll receive at his coming. Paul would write it this way. After seeing and hearing that Jesus, seeing and hearing from Jesus firsthand, as remember, Jesus appeared to Paul as one untimely born. Here's what Paul writes. But whatever things were gained to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Jesus, the Messiah. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Messiah Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things and consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. That I may gain this. Here he says a little bit later, same chapter, brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself as having taken hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining toward what lies ahead, I press towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in in the Messiah, Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus gives you confidence, everyone, to surrender your all to him. He gives you confidence to lay down your life. Really, to let go of all the things that we want, all the things that we desire, all the things that grab our attention now. His resurrection is what gives us the confidence to let them go and not grab hold of them now and grab hold of him. Peter once asked Jesus, He said, you know, we've surrendered everything to follow you. What's in it for us? Remember that? That's kind of how he asked it. You remember what Jesus said to him? You have not surrendered anything that God will not return to you 100 full. How do you know that's true? How do you know that's true? You know it's true because Jesus died and was buried and he rose from the dead And we have eyewitness reports and we have a world that's been transformed by his living resurrection. That's how you know that. That brings me to the last thing. The resurrection of Jesus ratifies the realities of Jesus' promises. There's probably so many promises that we could talk about here, but for time's sake and and just not to overwhelm you, I, I have two that I want to mention. And I guess these are the ones that seem to float to the top in my thinking all the time. But I have two promises that Jesus uh, ratifies with this resurrection, two realities that, that are ours through the promises of God because of Jesus' resurrection. Here's the first one. Jesus' resurrection gives me and you assurance in his promise that he will return to our world to rule our world. His resurrection gives us this assurance Now, Jesus promised his disciples at the time and all of us now today that as lightning lights the sky from horizon to horizon, so it would be when Jesus comes again. Jesus said he's going, but that he would come again. And he told lots of stories, lots of stories about a king who went off on a journey, but who was coming back. I mean, I think those are his way of portraying himself leaving, but eventually returning. 
The rest of the New Testament clearly states Jesus left and will come again to rule and to reign. When Jesus ascended into heaven, you remember what happened? The disciples are watching and then all of a sudden angels are there. And the angels say, hey, why are you looking up? The same Jesus that you've seen depart, he's going to come in the same way. He's going to return in the same way. Peter Peter um, writes this. He says, praise be to the God. This is 1 Peter 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope. How? Through the resurrection of Jesus the Messiah from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by, the God's, by God's power until the coming of that salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. And that coming in salvation, that's Peter talking about the return of the Lord Jesus. According to Peter, the resurrection of Jesus gives us assurance that Jesus is coming again and that with his coming with his coming because of his resurrection we have an inheritance that won't pass away it seems pretty clear that the early disciples believed this so emphatically that they were convinced that it was going to be just around the corner so they began to mooch off each other and since it was just around the corner hey i'll just live off your work you like to work i don't like to work i'm going to live off your work so much so that Paul had to write to the Thessalonican church, which hadn't even been following Jesus very long. In his second letter to them, he said, hey guys, if you're not working, you don't eat. You don't mooch off everyone else, right? So the early church believed. As time went on, they began to mock the believers because Jesus hadn't come back yet, right? Remember, Peter writes about this. He said, hey, you're mocking us, but the reason why he hasn't returned is his mercy towards you. It's been 2,000 years. They didn't expect it. We didn't expect it to be that long. We don't know how long it's going to be. But listen to this. The resurrection of Jesus ought to encourage you. Jesus is coming back. And what did Micah and Matt say just a few weeks ago? We should live in that expectancy. We should be looking for it, praying for it, being ready for it. Because Jesus is coming again. That's the first promise that I think the resurrection of Jesus validates. But the second one is that his resurrection gives us assurance that we too will rise from the dead as he did. This was the hope of every New Testament believer. They would one day rise from the dead and live again. Paul said, my hope is that I might obtain to the resurrection from the dead. He writes a whole long chapter, chapter 15 in his letter to the church at Corinth, basically talking about the importance of the resurrection, claiming that Jesus is the first fruits. We're the second fruits at his coming. In my opinion, in my opinion, this is the ultimate promise of the valley of dry bones in Ezekiel, that God will resurrect us from the dead. People were saying that Jesus didn't rise again. Paul says if he didn't rise again, no one will. He didn't rise again. No one will. He then says, if, he do, if, if we don't rise again one day, you might as well eat, drink, and be merry because death is just around the corner. Listen, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then we have no confirmation of any promise of future resurrection. So Paul says, you might as well just, you might as well just eat, drink, and be merry because that's it. 
In Romans chapter 6, Paul writes this, We were buried therefore with him in baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Now listen, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. You know, we portray this whenever we do baptism and we put the person under and we bring them up and we say, you're rising to walk in newness of life. And we're talking about how you and I are supposed to live now as a new man, a new woman in Christ. But let's not forget that that's supposed to represent If we've been united with him in death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We too shall rise from the dead. Philippians 3, Paul says, Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. When Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead the first time, you remember this, right? And he's going to do it again. He's going to raise Lazarus from the dead again. But remember what he told Martha? He said, I am the resurrection. I'm the reason people will rise. And his own resurrection proves that. The resurrection of Jesus gives us confidence when the time of our death comes to hope and all that he's promised to us about eternal life, that we shall have eternal life with him and like him. All right, so there you have it. The resurrection of Jesus certifies the claims of Jesus' identity. He is God, Lord, Savior. It validates the value of Jesus' commands. It tells me that laying down my life for him is worth it because I shall pick it back up again with him in his kingdom. It ratifies the reality of his promises that he will return and that we shall rise from the dead with him. Jesus is risen from the dead with his resurrection. He promises life to you. If you will turn from being your own God, if you will turn from your sin, turn from your brokenness, turn from trying to fix yourself and turn to the one who lived perfectly by God's design God says he'll do this for you. Number one, he'll forgive you of your sins immediately, completely, all of them. Number two, he'll make you new. If any man or woman is in Jesus, he's a new creation, a new creature. He'll give you a helper. You know, I don't know about you guys. I struggle with my brokenness still. After 40 years of following Jesus, I struggle with my brokenness. But God has given me a helper. I'm not alone. I'm not having to fight this on my own. He's got somebody with me. His spirit, and here's the, and he will give me eternal life with him. Are you tired of your old life? Are you tired of, are you tired of living selfishly? Are you tired of just feeling broken and feeling worthless and feeling shame? Then listen, Jesus wants to fix all of that. He wants to change all of that for you. My goal this morning was hopefully to encourage and energize you believers to invigorate your faith and your hope. And I hope the resurrection of Jesus has done that. You know, uh, recently, you know, when we were changing ministry jobs or whatever back in in the fall, I mean, back in in September, 
You know, I've been the outreach leader and I've done nothing with it for a number of years now. But Michael said he wanted to lead it. And I got to tell you something, as he began to leave, my heart was energized to want to share my faith again. As he began, he had a meeting and it was just a meeting. And we just talked about sharing our faith and my heart was energized by that. And, and then, then I had to lead a Bible study. So I, I, we, we did this thing on how to share our faith. Not just energized me, you know. And I hope that the resurrection of Jesus is energizing you this morning. It's giving you hope. It's giving you, it's giving you motivation to live your life for Jesus at whatever cost. Because Christ Jesus is risen from the dead, never to die again. I hope it's invigorated your faith, as my faith has been invigorated here recently. But for others of you, today could be the day of your salvation. Today could be the day that you say, I am willing I am willing. I'm willing to follow Jesus. I'm willing to let go of the burden hand to take hold of that which God has promised me to come. So I just simply ask, is there anyone here this morning that's willing to do that? To let go of the burden hand, that is your life and all your wants and all your desires and you being the boss and are willing to say, I want to take hold of what Jesus wants to give me. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any questions, you can email them to Pastor Jimmy at baconscastle.com. Also, check us out on YouTube and Facebook to get to know us and see what God is doing here in Surrey. Be blessed.